For the first nearly four decades of my life, physical fitness was never a concern. Not because I was in good shape, but because I wanted nothing to do with it, and it felt the same way about me. <laughs> An unusual series of events led to me trying running, which quite surprisingly turned out I enjoyed, and I saw immediate benefit. And so for the next two years, it seemed like the weather was always perfect, and there was always time for a run. It was great. I ran three times a week, felt great, runs got longer, times got faster, all was good. More recently, however, I have learned just how fleeting physical fitness really is. Because work and busyness and weather and Little League have made it difficult to consistently get three runs in a week. And I have paid the price for it. Missing it just two or three runs immediately drops my pace. I lose like a minute a mile after like two missed runs. If I happen to miss two full weeks, well, then it's like I've never run before. My body is actually screams at me and is insulted at the idea. It's very frustrating to think that you can run for several years and then two weeks off, you're almost starting over from scratch. But the point is, what I have learned is that it is impossible to do nothing and stay in shape. You're either putting in the regular workouts or you are very quickly losing your edge. Well, it turns out there is a striking similarity between the regular effort required to maintain our physical fitness and the regular effort that is required to maintain our spiritual fitness. The Apostle Paul actually tapped into this comparison between these two ideas when he compared the rigors of spiritual training to those required for physical training in 1 Timothy 4, 7, and 8. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So what Paul is very clear is that spiritual fitness does not come for free. It requires training, consistent training, to have that level of godliness we're called to be. Well, as a church, we are, God willing, preparing to adopt the 2020 vision. And I'm going to take a digression from the sermon for just a moment to put in some public service announcements related to the vision. Um, because there is a lot going on in the life of our church in the next week that I really want everyone to make sure you are fully aware of and on board with. So the first is tonight uh, at 6 o'clock we'll have a time of prayer and then we will move into a town hall. I won't tell you what time that'll be because then you might skip on the praying. We want you to come and pray. But then this is a great opportunity to come and just talk with the members of the team, ask us questions, and, and we'll do our best to clarify. As a door prize, first 24 families through will get a copy of the 50-page full report. All right, it's exciting. All right, good reading. You will enjoy it as much as we have enjoyed writing it and editing it and reading it lots and lots of times. So that's tonight. We are, of course, aiming towards what, God willing, is the adoption of this vision on Friday night. So Friday night, the 9th, uh, I know it's busy, like everyone's super busy right now, but we will actually be having a potluck dinner, a time of worship, a time of celebration, and then a vote on the motion you have in your bulletin. This is 
specifically what we will be asking the church to adopt related to the vision. And to be clear, this one looks a lot shorter than 50 pages, right? That's the good news. That's because the vision is intentionally what we are adopting is the paragraph of the vision. It is the content of the pillars. It is the initiatives under the pillars. Everything else in the 50-page document is explanation and suggestion and recommendation. And that is intentional because for the vision to be successful, it must go from being the work of, uh, of God guiding 12 people to something that the entire congregation embraces and makes their own in the process of implementation. And so that is why as a body we are accepting the very high level elements of the vision. And then as we spread out the implementation across the whole congregation, the details will need to be worked out. That is intentional. So you will see it here. The content, the very last thing, relates to a temporary suspension of part of the bylaws. We don't have the bylaws in the bulletin, but they are in the back, right? Niles, the, the relevant sections that we're suggesting uh, be suspended for a temporary period until the bylaws themselves can catch up with the process. Now back to our regularly scheduled sermon. So we are preparing to adopt this 2020 vision, and we are called in it to be a lighthouse for Christ at the corner of Clipper and Mariner. All right, the members of the community of faith, that's us, and many who are not here yet, God willing, are living the great commandment and fulfilling the great commission as true disciples of our Lord and Savior. Without compromising the truth inherent in God's holy word, we are presenting his grace through our words and deeds. And our worship is exalting him, and our ministry is glorifying him, and our outreach is preparing others to meet him. And most of all, our faith is being demonstrated through an unrelenting commitment to prayer that is driven by a fervent hunger to see his will done. And for me, this vision is both really exciting and a bit scary because it is really hard to be the kind of people God is calling us to be. I don't know about you, but I'm not all that. We got work to do. To faithfully shine the light of Jesus Christ throughout our neighborhood and wherever we go, we're going to have to be different than we are naturally. Because our natural selves are not all that interested in doing all those things. We have to be transformed. And this is something that happens through the Holy Spirit, working in the heart of every believer in Jesus Christ. But, but that transformation isn't just a quick one time and you're done. It must be an ongoing, continuous force in our life that is keeping us spiritually fit rather than spiritually flabby. That is ultimately the point driving the second and third initiatives under the building up pillar. Now, if you've been with us for the past several weeks, I hope you know at this point, right, I told you last week, if you, you don't have to memorize all 50 pages of the vision document, I'm pretty sure Niall has, but nobody else will. But you need to know eight words, right? God's lighthouse, and then the other six words are our pillars. What are the pillars? All right, I heard a welcome in, yes. Someone not my wife, right? I hear, I hear it, though. I'm getting spreading out, right? What else? Building up and reaching out. All right, we're doing good here. We are doing good. So we began talking about building up last week. And building up was mentioned on a card that was in your bulletin last week. 
It looks like this. If you weren't here last week or if you misplaced your card, we have a bunch in the back along with welcoming in cards. Remember, collect all three. If you put all three on your refrigerator, you have a monopoly and you can charge double for the food that your kids take out of the fridge. And it says that we are a community of faith in which each person is continuously growing in Christ. Personal mentoring, biblical teaching, and individual study fuel our growth. We are all being transformed by the Holy Spirit into the hands and feet of Christ to make him visible to our neighbors. This is what I want to look at today, specifically the idea of continuously growing and being transformed. And the passage I want to look at that through, the focal passage is Romans chapter 12, as has already been shared with you, verses 1 and 2. These are some of my favorite verses. Uh, many, many, many years ago, I did a, a Bible study called The Mind of Christ, and Romans 12, 2 is one of the focal verses you memorize as part of that study. It was a life-changing study. So I love this passage. Writing in the Roman church, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And Paul is appealing for us here to commit to God, to offer up the entirety of our lives as a sacrifice to God through faith and transformation. And specifically, he is explaining that we should commit our lives to God because of his commitment to us. Philip was the perfect setup man for me. Right, The first 11 chapters of Romans are exactly what Philip said. They are exploring God's commitment to us, the nature of what he has done for us. That's what Paul means at the very beginning of chapter 12 when he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. You see, the first 11 chapters are describing in passionate and eloquent terms what the mercies of God are. And if you get to the very end of chapter 11, there's like five or six times in the last few verses of chapter 11 talking about the mercy of God. But really, the mercies of God are the summation of the first 11 chapters of Romans. There, Paul has explained that regardless of our religious or ethnic background, we have each committed sins that have separated us from the perfect and holy, righteous God of the universe who cannot permit sin into his presence. But then he has also explained how God loves us so much that he has not left us hopeless and and lost in our situation and trapped, but has instead offered a way back into his presence through faith in Jesus Christ. In Romans 3, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And we begin to understand the incredible nature of that grace, of that gift, when we realize that for us to receive this free gift from God, Jesus Christ paid for it. He paid for it on our behalf. As Paul explained in Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
You see, our sin, whatever our personal sin of choice is, and I guarantee you every one of us has a personal sin of choice or two, whatever it is, it should be paid for by our death, by our eternal separation from God, from spiritual death. But instead, Jesus paid the price for us at the cross. In Romans 5, Paul says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ suffered a terrible, horrifying, humiliating death on a Roman cross. This is the death of a rebel and an outlaw. He was not a rebel or an outlaw, but he suffered that death. He chose to go there willingly because we are. We have each rebelled against the Lord. We have each chosen to do our own thing at times rather than what God wants us to do. That's the measure of God's commitment to us, that he was willing to send his eternal son, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice for us while we were still wallowing around in the mess of our own sin that we've made for ourselves. That as his son was nailed to the cross, our sin was nailed to the cross with him. And the great mercy of God that Paul talks about is that we can't ever do enough to earn that love. There is no amount of good deeds we can do or good behavior or good thoughts that could possibly earn us that gift, that grace, that eternal life that we're given, and yet God has given it to us anyway. And all we have to do, so simple and yet so difficult for our proud and stubborn hearts, is believe in the risen Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. As Paul is bringing that whole first section of Romans to its conclusion, he proclaims in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That's the foundation that Romans 12 stands on. The immeasurable grace and mercy and love and commitment of God towards us. And while we can do nothing to earn that, and we should never fool ourselves into thinking that we have somehow earned it, Paul is clear as he moves into chapter 12 that as recipients of that love and grace and mercy, our hearts should be overflowing with gratitude and joy and a desire to commit ourselves to God. And if our hearts aren't overflowing with that, I think that just means we need to spend more time meditating on those mercies of God from the first 11 chapters of Romans and really think about what he did for us until we realize that was a really good deal. So this commitment is what Paul is calling us to in chapter 12. Verse 1 calls us to commit our lives to God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, right? As Mark said, that's about giving up your life. That's not just turning over a little bit of control. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
He says, followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to be living sacrifices. People who are alive in Christ and who are living for him, fully committed to his glory and honor. And in offering up our bodies, Paul is describing a commitment of our whole being here. Mind, body, soul, strength, heart. We're being called to offer up every aspect of our lives to God because of our deep and growing love for Him, because of His mercies. And Paul uses three words to describe the kind of sacrifice we are to be. Living, holy, and acceptable. Then he reminds us that making that sacrifice, committing ourselves to God, is an act of worship unlike any other. It is far greater than merely coming and sitting in a church on Sunday morning. This is a much more important act of worship to offer up our lives to the God who set us free and gave us new life in Christ. So as living sacrifices, as I said, we are to be alive in Christ. We are to be living lives committed to Him, to growing and building God's kingdom. That's one of the words. And then our sacrifice is to be acceptable to God. And as I thought about what that meant, my conclusion is we need to realize that this is something we can never accomplish on our own. No matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we work around the church and, and faithfully do the things we are called to do, our best efforts are still going to fall short of the glory of God. They will not be acceptable in themselves. But it might be our motives, which might be mixed. Uh, yeah, we want to really help people, but we don't mind when people recognize us for, for doing a good job. Or, or maybe our methods are a little bit mixed. We, we make some mistakes. Or maybe our results. But anyway, it might be all three. They're always going to fall short of the perfect and holy God and what He deserves. But it doesn't matter because we have been made acceptable through the blood of Jesus Christ. Romans 4.25 explains that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. To be justified is a legal term. It means to be declared not guilty. It is what makes us acceptable. It is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that makes us acceptable to God, that makes our sacrifice of ourselves acceptable to God. It is not anything we do. And finally, Paul says that we are to be a holy sacrifice. Now, biblically, it's important to understand that to be holy doesn't just mean to be really churchy. To be holy means to be set apart from the ordinary, from the everyday, and be specifically devoted to God. And so the question is, how do we, messed up as we are, suffering from temptation practically every day just as we are, how do we ever become set apart and holy? Well, Paul explains this in verse 2 where he calls us to holiness through the renewal of our minds. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now we need to recognize that since holiness is about being set apart for God, that the contrast of being conformed to this world is the opposite of holiness. It is the opposite of being set apart for God. It is fully embracing the things that are not God. So if we follow the patterns of our culture in the way that we live, or in our priorities and values, or in what we watch, 
or in what we post or look at online, or in what we do to relax, or in the way that we converse, or in the way we conduct ourselves at work, or in the way that we raise our children, if we're living lives that are basically indistinguishable from a very nice atheist or agnostic down the street, that's not holiness. So I want to challenge each of us over the coming days to look honestly at ourselves and ask God to reveal to ourselves, are we, is our lifestyle, are our values and our way of thinking about difficult issues, is there a meaningful difference between us and a non-believer? And if not, we've got some work to do to be holy as a sacrifice. Far too many confessing Christians and even Christian churches and denominations have conformed to this world <clears throat> to focus on or, or include its habits and mores, its political and social values and priorities, its way of thinking and reasoning about difficult subjects. Sometimes it's obvious, but often in ourselves it's very subtle. It's hard to recognize that the way we're evaluating an issue or a problem is based on our reason and our experiences and, and the way everyone else thinks rather than the way God calls us to think in Scripture. And the reality, and you can certainly see it on Facebook and other venues, is that very few faithful evangelical Christians in America actually have a biblical worldview. Wonderful Christian people, but not thinking about subjects from a biblical perspective. And the reason for that is that our culture is so effective at shaping the very way we think, the categories of our mind, and the way we organize our thoughts. We are influenced from day one. But Paul says there's a cure for this. And that cure for conforming to the world, for falling short of the holiness we're called to, the cure is transformation. He commands us to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. And when he does this, he is using a grammatical construction that is making clear this is not a one-time event. Unlike salvation, which you believe and you are saved, this is an ongoing daily command, a habitual matter of being renewed day by day. And the reason for this is that our natural tendency to sink back into the habits and patterns of this world is so powerful. It's not only what we naturally want to do, it is what the world is constantly, very subtly calling us to do. I like to compare our personal journey of faith to being like a boat in the middle of a river without an anchor. There is a current that is moving you always pushing you in one direction, downstream. That's away from God. We must be constantly choosing whether we want to paddle upstream towards God, the path of transformation and renewal, or whether we are just going to drift downstream away from God. There is no alternative. There is no standing still. The good news is that if we choose to paddle upstream, God straps a big motor on the back of our boat that will push us closer to him if we choose to use the motor. That's the Holy Spirit. So how's your journey going right now? What are you doing on the river?
Are you paddling nearer? Are you using the power of the Holy Spirit to move closer to God, or are you drifting farther away from the Lord? Right? There's no standing still. We are doing one or the other at all times. While transformation is a work of the Holy Spirit, it is one that is profoundly influenced by what we choose to feed our minds or what we choose to not feed our minds. So are you daily renewing your mind, or most days are you letting your mind decay? Paul explains that the lifelong blessing of mental transformation is that as the Spirit helps us grow in godliness... We're going to be better be able to evaluate decisions and opportunities and feelings and temptations and figure out which ones are, are truly from God, God's will for us, and which ones are simply our human desire. That's the essence of his closing words in Romans 12, too, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So let's return to the 2020 vision. How are we as a community of faith going to help one another answer the call to commit our lives to God and to live a life of holiness through renewal and transformation? You see, commitment and holiness don't just happen by virtue of believing in Jesus Christ. Salvation happens from that. Our eternal destination is secure because of that, but we don't necessarily know what to do. We're not necessarily fully committed or, or moving towards holiness. right? If belief was sufficient to make that happen, Paul wouldn't have had to write the Roman church about it. Rather, learning to live the life of a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ requires that training in godliness he talked about to Timothy. And that's the driving purpose of our building up pillar. And, and to support it, we are proposing two initiatives in addition to the one we discussed last week. We will build up to transform minds. That's the purpose of initiative two, which is to continually equip and encourage every member of the community of faith to apply classic spiritual practices to their contemporary lives. Now, in light of our calling to be transformed on an ongoing basis by the renewal of our minds, we need to recognize, quite honestly, that, that simply putting in an hour or two on Sunday morning for God is not enough to transform and renew our minds. Right? There are 168 hours in a week. Coming to worship together and study the Bible together is incredibly powerful. But I would argue that most of the time it is not enough to offset the other 166 or 167 hours in the week. Because the world is coming at us relentlessly. Things like Netflix and 24-hour news, fake news, the internet, social media, the radio, TV are bombarding us constantly with a secular, selfish, negative, humanistic worldview. It's very hard to offset all of that in an hour or two on Sunday. Instead, we need to be unleashing the power of God's Spirit on a daily basis to renew and transform our minds. And guess what? Christians have known how to do this for centuries. And nothing has changed or become special because we're in the 21st century, other than we have some technological aids like being able to put our Bible on our iPhone. But the modern-day church, and ours is no exception, has neglected to teach these biblical practices, and so we are left with very few tools with which to renew our minds. 
we're going to change that. Hopefully you know that reading the Bible every day is something we strongly encourage here. I'd like to hope you kind of subtly got that message over the last few years. Uh, it's one I'm passionate about because it has literally changed my life. It has renewed and transformed my mind on a daily basis. But I also know that many struggle with getting started and with understanding the Word and applying it in their lives. So we need to help that. And for those who are good about reading the Bible every day, how many feel confident and comfortable with some of the other practices that are talked about in the Bible, like prayer? What about biblical meditation? That's talked about a lot in the Bible, but it looks nothing like what we think of as meditation. It has nothing to do with crossing your legs and going, oh, oh. So we're going to talk about that. How many people here have recently fasted for non-medical purposes? I'm willing to bet very few. And yet Jesus spoke as if he expected his followers to do that regularly. And so the point of this initiative is that we will bring these practices before the community of faith. We will talk about them. We're not going to make you, like, we're not going to kick you out if you don't do these things. But we're going to bring them forward. We're going we're to use various media and mechanisms on a regular basis. Yes, you'll hear about it in sermons. But you might get focal moments in services. You might get uh, email blasts about them. It might be in bulletins. We might have extra studies or seminars after lunch some days. Or, or, or we'll push content through our awesome someday LRBC app that I know about two-thirds of you are super excited about. And one-third of you are like, what on earth are you people doing? <laughs> Over time, we will effectively teach, or teach rather, how to effectively read the Bible on a daily basis, how to memorize Scripture. Yes, I know, I know. Talk about prayer, meditation, journaling, stewardship, evangelism, service, worship, and yes, even fasting safely. Yes, I don't enjoy that, but there is value. Then we'll teach and coach one another in how to to integrate these practices into our overly busy 21st century Northern Virginia lives. And I guarantee that we're going to be blessed by the effort to do so because these practices have been the raw ingredients of mental transformation and renewal for 2,000 years. And Christians have long made clear that when we start filling our minds with these things of God, the Holy Spirit takes over and does the rest. And we will build up to commit our lives to God. That's the purpose of Initiative 3, which is to purposely prepare and equip the members of the community of faith to share the good news while being the hands and feet of Christ to our neighbors. Now, one of the most common inputs we actually got in our congregational meetings is a desire to learn how to share the good news of Jesus Christ, which is awesome, because there is a broad recognition that we are called to share this love of Jesus, this good news, with those we encounter as we travel through life and with those we set out to encounter in our community. And it's incredibly important to know how to share the gospel because as critical as it is to authentically live a life of integrity and holiness in order to open the door to share the gospel, when the door opens, we've got to know what to say. Think of Paul's words in Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? People can't respond to the gospel if they've never heard it. And some may never hear it in our ultra-modern, hyper-secular, post-Christian, 21st century American world if we don't tell them. And sharing the gospel is much more relational today than it was a few decades ago. So 
We'll talk about it more in the next couple of weeks, but we're not planning to equip you to go out and confront people with the four spiritual laws. In postmodern America that is full of people my age and younger who have been marketed to and spun to and, yes, let's just call it what it is, lied to our whole lives, just telling people the gospel is usually not adequate, barring a miraculous intervention. It is largely a waste of time. They've heard lots of people tell lots of good things to them, and many of them have turned out to be lying. That's why in the vision you see such an emphasis throughout on doing the work of God, on doing the work of building God's kingdom, of doing the work of making our corner of the world a little bit better. We must actually be the hands and feet of Christ so that people will see the gospel, and then they will want to know why we are doing this, and we'll have the opportunity to say the gospel. We need to recognize this is a serious commitment we're making as a church, a commitment to not only learn and renew our minds, but but to give up our time and effort, our most precious resources, and change the way we live. But that's what it means to be a living sacrifice to God, to give up our body and our time to build his kingdom, not out of some sense of compulsion or or dread, duty, or or punishment, or whatever, but out of joy and gratitude for all that he has done for us, his great mercies in Christ Jesus. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are indeed grateful for your unbelievable mercies that even in all of our messes, in all of our sins, Lord, you are there and you are ready to forgive because of the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts with love and joy and gratitude and that you would lead us to truly live out the commitment of being living sacrifices, that we would indeed turn our lives over to you, to your will, to serve you, to grow your kingdom, to live your gospel, that we may share your gospel, that others may join us in your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.